0: Please be advised, this episode discusses rape, miscarriage and PTSD. If this episode brings up anything for you, please get in touch with your local sexual assault and abuse hotlines. We are surrounded by incredibly strong people. Their journeys, like us all, are full of resilience, persistence, inner strength and an ability to gain perspective to make the best of what is thrown our way. This is People Are Amazing, the podcast. Helen is a wonderful mother of two beautiful girls, and although she's polyamorous, has been with her wife, who happens to be the father of her two girls, for nine years. Two years ago, while she was 15 weeks pregnant with their third child, Helen was raped by a man she knew tragically at that very moment while she laid there utterly hopeless with the weight of her rapist on top of her she knew she had lost her baby as it is in some parts of australia helen was not allowed to speak about this until all investigations were finalized and the case was closed she is raw and brave this is helen's story This is one of those stories that needs to be heard because there would be so many other people that have been through the same situation as you that may not know how to deal with it.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So let's kick it off. How about you share with us what's your name? Um, Where do you currently live? Where did you grow up? And how old are you now?
1: I am Helen Morgan. I live in South Wales in the UK, and I that's where I grew up. I been born and bred in my little town, and I am 27. And uh, what was it like in your childhood? I come from a pretty big family, and they are well-known in my area, some for bad reasons, some for good. Growing up and having a childhood was kind of non-existent. Even though I was one of four, I have an older brother and sister who are my half-brother and sister. And then I have my full brother who's younger than me. But my mum was disabled with spina bifida. And I became a young carer for her at the age of eight. From there on, I had grew up pretty fast. And it was difficult because there was no other kids around that understood where I was coming from. And when I didn't even realize it was different from everyone else until I hit secondary school. I got to make sure she's okay. I got to make sure she's clean. I got to make sure that any wounds are dressed and sterilized properly so she doesn't get infections. And as much as I hate the fact I didn't really have a childhood, I'm also thankful because from that, I learned how to look after other people, how to cook, how to clean, basic first aid. It's a bit of a double-edged sword.
0: Spina bifida, that's such a huge burden to put on an eight-year-old. And how much could she do for you versus how much you could do for her?
1: Uh, she, was, she couldn't feel anything from the waist down, so she was incontinent. And I would make sure that her nappies were clean, that if she went through her nappies, that I would find clean clothes, help her change into them. Sometimes I would cook food for for her and make sure that, that she was cared for before me.
0: How old were you when she first discovered that this was happening to her body, that she was being overcome by this illness?
1: she's had it all her life she was born with it she wasn't expected to even survive three minutes because of it so she's sort of always had it and my oldest sister at the time was living with us but she moved out when she was 18 and I was eight so there's 10 years between us and that's when it started shifting
0: was your father around
1: yeah he was her official full-time carer but obviously he'd have to do shop runs like take my brother to and from school or myself any hospital runs he did an awful lot but my dad was the full-time carer my sister moved out i became then the young carer and my brother got to be a child so as
0: you grew up, you had that sort of moving into you know, puberty as you were growing up and you realised that there is a slight difference to your upbringing versus how yeah. other people were brought up.
1: What was going through your head then? Uh, through my head then, why can't I be normal? Why can't I go out and do these things that all my friends are doing? Because they don't have that responsibility of caring for somebody else. And there was a lot of questioning. There was also some resentment. I'm not going to lie.
0: There's no doubt your mom really appreciated it.
1: I don't think she did. Um, It's really hard to say because obviously she's not around anymore. I don't think she really did appreciate it because as I got older, I started noticing that things that she could do, she was not doing so she could make herself food but it was me making food it's like why don't you do this yourself have that bit of independence but i think a lot of the time she just didn't want to think about it and just be on her own
0: so when you confronted her she just i
1: never i never confronted her
0: So when did she pass away or how old were you when she passed on?
1: I was 19, so about nine years ago. She was 41. Uh, She had a blood clot to her lung and I had to make the decision of whether to resuscitate or not.
0: Why was it on you to decide on whether she would be resuscitated or not?
1: My brother at the time was only 15, so he had no authority, being under 18, of what happened. My dad was too emotional at the time, and he just couldn't think what was best. So as soon as they asked, I turned around and I said, don't resuscitate. There's no way for her to live. You know, she would end up suffering more, she'd be on permanent oxygen for about six months tops would I want to put her through that
0: wow that is yeah that's such a a big decision and such a brave decision to make that call
1: thank you um honestly sometimes I every so often I do question did I make the right call would she have pulled through against all odds but then I also got to think she's pulled through so many odds That maybe this one won't, she won't.
0: Well, considering the illness itself was not supposed to see her live past three minutes and she lived 19th birthday and your sister's 29th birthday, that's incredible.
1: Yeah, she wasn't supposed to have kids either. So when I'm her first daughter, uh, when that happened, I was sort of like the miracle child. You know, it was the odds against that as well.
0: Moving on from from that phase, that tragic time in your life, losing your mum at such a young age, and I I still feel as though they're the years where you kind of need your mum around as you slowly grow into a young woman.
1: I definitely needed her around because when she passed away, I was halfway through my pregnancy on my oldest child.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: The day later, after she passed away, I actually found out the gender of my child. So it was hard knowing that she would never meet her, that she wouldn't be around, that she wouldn't even know what gender this baby was.
0: I'm so sorry to hear that. But you have two beautiful girls from there. So that's silver lining. Yeah. in um, the next phase you were pregnant you had your baby um what was that what was motherhood like for you
1: it was very difficult because I'd lost my grandmother three months before I'd lost my mother and I was really close to her as well so I had no sort of maternal guidelines almost I knew that I didn't want to be like my mum and put everything on my child but I also because of everything that happened and me having to move as well I found it really hard to bond with my daughter so me and her didn't have a bond for about six months of her life because I just, I couldn't cope at all but I managed to get the help that I needed at that time. It turned out I had postnatal depression, which is understandable now looking back. But I was so afraid to bond with this child that she would be taken away in some form. No, we've got a pretty good bond now. Whenever she's scared or hurt or anything like that, she comes straight to me, gives me cuddles and she lets me know what's going on. And if I can help her, I will. And if it's just to give cuddles, then I'm there. That's beautiful. And that's all they want. Yeah.
0: Safety and security.
1: Oh, definitely. I still feel really bad that I wasn't there for six months of their life. But at that time, I had horrible thoughts going through my head. You know, I would bathe and... Every so often, you'd have the thought that I could just let go and walk away. And that's a horrible thought to have. But uh, I stayed away then to keep her safe.
0: So, Helen, you sound like you've gone from being an eight-year-old girl to being one of the main carers for your mum. And straight into your own motherhood. You've kind of skipped a big chunk of what could have been a sense of freedom for you.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Was this a sort of a decision that you made that you wanted to be a young mum or did it just happen?
1: Um, It just happened, to be honest. Uh, We were using contraception, but eh, it's not 100% effective. So i found out then that i was pregnant near my 19th birthday and at first i was panicking because obviously i was looking after my mum i just lost my nan i had a job to hold down as well and i think i panicked up until i heard her heartbeat When I heard her heartbeat for the first time, I knew everything was going to be okay.
0: It was the best decision.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't be without her at all. Like when you first see them on the screen as well, it's like, that's my baby inside there.
0: And you're not alone again. Yeah. Such a lovely feeling, isn't it? It is. And
1: then when you first, feel them kick in as well. I think that's the only thing I miss about being pregnant is the feeling of the baby inside. Like, don't like the morning sickness. Don't like anything else, just like the feeling.
0: So let's talk about what, what happens next. How did your world start to change? I mean, I know you feel like you've already lived 50 years, <laughs> first, you know, 15 minutes of the story that you're sharing with me. But the next part of how things have gone from being a mom, you know, being your love bubble of being in in motherhood after the six months of postnatal depression and really starting to embrace motherhood. When did things start to go sour for you?
1: I'd say two years ago. I've obviously had a lot in my life beforehand, but I've always managed to handle it because I've had to. Um, Two years ago, I was raped by somebody I thought I could trust and I was pregnant on my third child at that point point. and during the rape is when I lost that baby and it was so hard I just wanted to go home because this wasn't even in my own house, thankfully I just needed to go home and be with my wife. What happened? I'm polyamorous. My wife is transgender. She's the father of my two children and was the father of this child. And being polyamorous, a lot of people think it's an open marriage, but it's not. It's having strong feelings and a relationship with somebody other than your primary partner who obviously she supports me I support her but I met this guy and we'd known each other for two years and I thought I could trust him I went to go visit him and I'd visited him before nothing wrong or anything like that I was obviously pregnant and so very hormonal as well. He turned around and said he didn't want to be with me because he was interested in somebody else, which, okay, fair enough. That's fine. So we broke up, but we stayed in our hotel room. And the next thing I know, it's like he's... Almost like being possessed, something else was there and it wasn't him. And he started to undress me and be on top of me. Uh, I also suffer with fibromyalgia. So at the time I was having a slight flare up as well, because not being on medication, because I don't want to damage baby. I was in a lot of pain. And there's nothing I could do. Um I do think back saying, Could I have done this? Could I have done that? But I couldn't do anything. And I was begging for this for him to stop. I was there going, please, please just stop, please. And he didn't. And when he'd finished having his way, it just sort of inside they felt like a detach almost i literally just felt my baby go and there was blood everywhere and i had to try and clean all that up and i was in shock to be honest i didn't know what was going on uh to the point that i didn't even kick him out the hotel room I didn't want to be on my own in a place I didn't really know going through a miscarriage but uh, six o'clock the morning after I got the first train back home and I called my wife and I told her exactly what happened and as soon as I came home she was there and she hugged me and I couldn't let her touch me. And everybody thinks that rape is this thing that happens to you, but it's the aftermath I find is the hardest. Because, yeah, I lost a baby. Yeah, I was in pain. But what I hurt more was the fact that my wife couldn't even touch me to comfort me. I could not hold my children to give them cuddles because I couldn't let anybody touch me a few days afterwards it was my dad's birthday I couldn't hug him I could not hug him at all to wish him a happy birthday that was really really hard that happened in March and I didn't report it until June so a lot of the evidence was gone because I just didn't know what to do During that, I ended up, because of what happened, social services, ends ended up involved. We had our children taken away for five days as well. So I was in pieces over that. I couldn't go and see them. Not because I didn't want to not because people were stopping me. It was because I would go there and I couldn't bring my babies home. But it was to keep them safe. After five days, we had them back. And we worked close with social services, health visitors, the school, to let them sort of understand that at the moment, mummy is very sad. Mummy's going through an awful lot without having to burden them with what actually happened. Because they knew there was a baby inside Mummy's tummy. And then suddenly there wasn't. They don't know why or how baby died.
0: I'm so sorry to hear that. That is just, there are no words. Can I ask you a little bit about um, when you reported it? How did the police receive the news?
1: Uh I have to say my local police were brilliant because it was cross borders. There was a it was a long time before anything could happen. It went from Gwent Police, which is my police force, to West Midlands police. And my sides they made sure that I was comfortable. They let me talk through it. Uh, they then then took me to a specialist building where they record you for evidence on what happened. And that was really hard to go into such detail about what happened to me. You have to remember everything, everything from the clothes they were wearing, what they smelled like, what the room was like. And I managed to do it and I felt not so much better but not worse either it was really hard to explain to be honest all i know in my head is that after sort of snapping back into reality after those months of trying to figure out what happened that i needed to do this not just for me but for my own children so that if anything like this happened to them You know, heaven forbid it would, but that they would know to go to the police. And they would know, go to the police as soon as you can.
0: I'm not familiar with it, so please forgive my next question. How did Child Protection get involved?
1: Uh, Through the police.
0: So you've gone through this ordeal and you're emotionally shell-shocked. Why would they take your children away?
1: It was a safeguard, because he knew roundabout where I was, but not entirely. Like if he went to the next town over and asked somebody where I lived, then they knew where I was. It was a safeguard for the children, so that if anything happened within those first sort of days of it being reported and him being brought in, that Any chance it would actually come back to me that they were safe. Obviously at the time I was distraught and I'm not going to lie, I yelled at them a lot and I screamed. But looking back on it, it was what's best for them. Because if anything did happen then obviously they would be there and they don't need that. You know, they need to be children themselves.
0: And so your wife, how did, where was she and how did she support you during this period and the children?
1: My wife, bless her soul, she has been brilliant. During that time, I sort of shut down. So I just... I wasn't hungry I wasn't tired nothing was sort of making sense to me but she was making sure that I had little bits of food here and there and if she saw that I couldn't handle anything she would send me upstairs to safeguard the children not that I would hurt them but I don't want that sort of mental energy put onto them So just protect them emotionally and mentally.
0: Even in the pain, you were still just looking after them first, making sure that they were well protected. Such an incredible mum.
1: I just, I didn't want them to not be children. I wanted them to be themselves and just, if mummy went away, it's because mummy is very sad at this point. And my oldest, bless it, she would knock the door of you so often. and She'd come in and she'd go, Mummy, I'm going to give you special cuddles to make you feel better. And even though it was really hard for me to even let her touch me, I would have to do that so it would make her feel like she was making a difference.
0: How long did it take for you to slowly start to feel present again? and not to be blank
1: a couple of months ago for 2 years i wasn't because it was an open case i wasn't allowed to talk about it i wasn't allowed to get counseling because it could compromise the case i wasn't allowed to do so much and it just sort of felt like i was just going through the motions for 2 years and new years I had a phone call from West Midlands Police uh, saying that they were not going to investigate the case any further, which probably put me at rock bottom because I trusted the authorities to help me. You know, I've gone through this ordeal which had broken me and he gets to walk around like nothing had happened and I think that was the hardest thing to try and get my head around did you ever and tr- I spoke to him I think afterwards not after the case it was before the case was even opened and he admitted it I still have the messages of him admitting what he did and the police had that but it wasn't enough it wasn't enough evidence what does that mean it's not enough because it could be coerced even though i put the full conversation i didn't put you know oh this was just what he messaged i put what i had put as well but no, apparently it could be coerced into him saying, oh, yeah, I've done this. But it seemed that he was safeguarded more than I was.
0: I, I'm so puzzled by it all.
1: Yeah, it- I was very puzzled when they decided to leave the case. It was like, there's evidence of him admitting it. There's even evidence of him wanting to go to the police himself. So why didn't he? I don't know. I wish I did. But he didn't. And by the time, obviously, I went to the police, the bruises had gone. Anything from that night that I was wearing, I threw out, I couldn't bear to have them in my house. I couldn't bear to have the underwear that I was wearing that was covered in semen and blood. I just, I couldn't bear it.
0: I'm so sorry that you went through this again. so much of this does not make any sense to me, and I feel like our, our justice system in any first world country has there are so many little gaps that just don't seem to make sense. And it, yeah, to support the victim. So most recently, and I'm, I know I'm digressing a little. In in Australia, a state of at the state of Victoria. They recently set through a law where those that were rape victims could no longer use their names to tell their stories. It was against the law.
1: Why safeguard the rapists? I can understand sort of why in some sense, because you do get some people who do cry and it doesn't actually happen. It's just them getting back at the other person and it can put the other person in danger. But why not also help the ones that actually did go through it.
0: I think when I read the article, I thought to myself, something is not right. Much like the laws in, in the US saying that um, abortion is illegal. And there was a period of time when they were talking about abortion being illegal and, and I'm not great with the political names, but the big head is a female, that most of the decision makers like sit underneath them are men. And there's yeah. a lot of religious pull that kind of sways people to, to say that, you know, yes or no against abortion. But, you know, as a female, it's our body. It should be stuff that we can make a decision on. And whether we, we've, if we've gotten in a position like you who have been raped, been demoralized, have lost a baby, and you're, a piece of you has gone from this entire yeah. situation. And no one's standing behind you that has any power to do something for you.
1: No, that's fucked. Yeah, yeah, it really is. A lot of laws are.
0: So, will you share this story with your kids when they grow up? I mean, now the opportunity after two years of being kept silence to now talk about it. I'm sure you're probably going to be. Outspoken about making sure that people know.
1: I've got the appropriate help from, I don't know if they have it the, in Australia, but in the UK, we have an organisation called Women's Aid. And it helps specifically women who've been through domestic abuse, sexual trauma, or anything like that. And at the moment, I'm currently on therapy with them, and they've been brilliant. I had a support worker from them as well while the case was ongoing. Obviously I couldn't talk about it to them, but if it went to court, it means that they could sort of bring me into it so that I could face him, but. Do you feel there's any remorse from his
0: end? Because I mean, he's sent you the text to say that, yep, you know, I did it. He said he's happy to go to the police and admit his,
1: No, there's no remorse.
0: So why admit it and put himself in a potential? I know nothing ever happened because of um, the conversation being potentially coerced, but why would you admit it if you don't want to do something about it?
1: I'm so so confused. I actually talked to his ex-partner at the time about what had happened because I was friends with her as well and she sent me messages. I sent her what he had said to me, because she said that he's denying everything. And there was literally once, literally, they're going, oh, I just agreed to it, so that she would think that she wasn't going crazy and that she was right. It's like, it's that little bit of extra manipulation in there. And after I found out that is obviously when I went to the police. It was like, I'm not lying. I'm not. I, you know, for him to, to do that to me and then call me a liar for it. You know, I just couldn't have it.
0: You're in a no-win situation. Yeah. So therapy. Therapy has, you know, you speak very fondly about therapy and how much it's helping you. How is therapy for a situation like this? What do they do to help you work through this situation in your mind, emotionally, physically?
1: In the UK, it's a 20-week therapy. And the first few weeks is building a relationship with your therapist. So it's building that relationship, building that trust to then be able to go in and talk about it and how everything made you feel and how it can affect your physical form as well because trauma, your body remembers it and it's going into how to deal with it, how to deal with trauma therapy, how to sort of anchor yourself into the physical world as well to stop yourself having a triggered episode so it's coping mechanisms and even if you don't want to talk about sort of what happened at that time you can talk about something else you have that hour just to get anything off your chest whether it be about the assault or Well, at the moment, my dad's cancer's back, and so I ended up talking about that as well for a while. And so it's not just solely put onto the assault, it's a wide basis to try and get your body back, try and get your life back, try and get your mind back. Because before the therapy, honestly. I wanted to die and I tried, I'm not going to lie, you know, at that time I thought my children would be better off without me, I thought that my wife, she wouldn't have to look after me and she could concentrate on our children and Honestly, I just felt like I was wasting everybody's time. But therapy has put through that those thoughts are normal. They are a normal way to think and react, but they're not true. And it took a long time for me to, because I'm 15 weeks in and it took a long time. Me to accept that what happened wasn't my fault.
0: That's a really yeah. journey that you've managed to get to here where you have accepted it. Not that it's something you should yeah. ever accept, but you are in a better position emotionally and mentally. Yeah. And that's wonderful. What is next? So the next five weeks, you you know, over the 20-week program, you're 15 weeks in. What is the next five weeks for you then? How, how many more sort of progressions and milestones do you have to get to to make sure that at 20 weeks you are back to a better version of yourself?
1: I was trying to get into that mentality that this was his fault. He knew what he was doing. He heard me beg. He heard me cry. He saw me cry. And he still did it anyway. It's just trying to reinforce that it's not my fault.
0: It's not your fault. He's an asshole. No.
1: Yeah. So what do you do for work? Um, With fibromyalgia, I also have migraines, so it's really hard for me to find work. I guest at gaming conventions. It's not so much work because I don't get paid. But it's something that I enjoy where I can, on a Sunday, usually go into a mental health panel that I host. I talk to people about their mental health. First 10 minutes, open door, myths about mental health, different ways to cope, different strategies if you have an anxiety attack or anything like that and i try and reinforce that it's a safe area that we don't go out and say repeat what's outside of this room instead of it being me telling them all these different facts it's everyone as a group talking about what's happening in their lives and i won't mention names but there was a child well she was 14 and she felt like that she wanted to die and this was a couple of weeks after I'd attempted. So I told her my story in, that I wanted to do this. And I'm, I've been where you are and just try to reinforce that she wasn't on her own. That there are people who can help, that there are people who understand what she's going through. Because I think that's the it's the biggest sort of taboo isn't it it's mental health it's like you're made to feel like you're on your own but doing these panels i just want to reinforce that they're not on their own and if it can help just one person each time i'm so happy because it's the worst feeling in the world is feeling like you're alone Good
0: on you for taking that kind of initiative to, you know, build a platform for other people to talk about mental health.
1: Yeah. I just, it's a lot of the time it's talking about how as well, because as part of a cosplay community and how that can actually help with your mental health. Because even if it's just a case of dressing up and going out, you're just not you for a day. You haven't got those stresses, those anxieties, or anything like that. And it feels great. I did it in that two years. It was the only time in those two years of waiting for what was going to happen in my case that I didn't feel like myself, which is a good thing. I didn't feel scared. I didn't feel anxious. I wasn't looking over my shoulder constantly. I was enjoying my life for a couple of days.
0: How are you keeping it up? I want to like focus a little bit on some of the positive stuff that happens to you now. Like what makes you happy <laughs> now? You've gone through you know, a million years' worth of ordeal and you are now coming back out the other side. How are you injecting some positivity and happiness into your life every day?
1: My children. My children mainly. And I know it sounds like nothing, but I've started cooking again. To some people that might not sound like it's a major deal, but to me, for somebody who hadn't cooked for two years because I just couldn't bring myself to do it, that's a big change. So I'm cooking more, not so much for my children. My children are fussy, so pizza in the oven, here you go. But for my wife, I cook... These meals that I find recipes for, I go, Right, you're going to be my guinea pig. And she's excited. And then just seeing her reaction to my cooking, uh, it makes me so happy that she enjoys it. That it's something that I can show as well to say that I appreciate her for everything that she has done for me.
0: You're a born again fetal.
1: Yes. Yes, before what happened, I always enjoyed cooking, always. And for that to be back in my life, it feels great.
0: Can we take a moment to talk about polyamory?
1: Yeah, no problem.
0: So is your relationship still in that sort of status?
1: Yes. Um, I haven't really had another partner properly since then because obviously trust issues and not being able to tell them what happened, so I couldn't have the support from them that I needed. But I've always had my primary partner, which is my wife, been together now, what, nine years ourselves. You know, we've had our ups and downs, but we've always come out the other end. But it's trying to find, I don't know, the best way I can explain it is that My heart is sort of in more than just two pieces than just my own and my partner's. There's another piece and it has this need to sort of be out in the world because there is no restrictions either on love, on how many people you can love, on who you can love.
0: How did you both meet? And, And then subsequently have that conversation about, hey, let's do it unconventionally. (laughs)
1: Uh, When we first met, um, I was 18. I was doing a paper route uh, early in the mornings as well as doing late night bartending work just to try and keep money up in the family. But we both went to the same college to study art and at the time he was in the course underneath me. So we were having drinks at the pub and... I turned round and I said, Right, you're going to man up and ask me out, or am I going to have to do it? And we've been inseparable ever since.
0: And your wife, when did she make the transition?
1: Apparently, going through the transition. It's once again, thanks to the cosplay community that she found who she is. Because obviously, you can have men dress up as women, women dress up as men, and everything like that. And she just felt more comfortable. In feminine clothes and being a woman, even if it was just acting out for those two days. And she was a happier person. So, about three years ago, she came out as transgender. And that's when she started to transition. And we tried to explain to our children then it's just sometimes girls are born as boys, and sometimes boys are born as girls, and that's okay. And we gave them obviously the choice as well of, well, you can stick to calling daddy daddy, or you can call her mummy as well. They've stuck to calling her daddy, which it still trips me up even now. Every so often, it's like, oh yeah, he. Wait, there, no, she. Daddy is a girl.
0: It's amazing. I think um, this is this is the area that I think people need to learn about, as well as so many other parts of our conversation. But it's yeah, this being gender neutral is such an important piece in our community these days. <laughs> You no, know, it's so yeah. emphasis on pronouns, male versus females, what they should be doing, what
1: they shouldn't be doing, who cares? Because... We're just trying to teach our children to be themselves and screw the rest of the world who says that you have to be this way.
0: 100%.
1: If you want to grow up and you figure that you are more of a boy than a girl, then go for it. If you want to go against the norm of monogamy because you just have more love to give, then go for it you know, anything short of being illegal stuff, go for it.
0: Do you think you'll get back on the bandwagon of um, other relationships
1: soon? Do you think you're strong enough? Um, I do feel strong enough and I actually have a date at the end of the month. Ooh! Yes.
0: How do you, um, what's the platform? Are you guys meeting
1: each other online? um we actually met each other through a mutual friend i was helping him with the lifting and this guy came with us it turned out we'd met before when i was working at the pub and i'm actually really excited
0: i'm excited for you you'll have to keep me posted how it goes i will how How wonderful well look thank you so much for sharing your story i know we've kind of gone from um you know the level of intensity and me learning a little bit more about polygamy as well which is Fantastic. I really want to thank you so much for being so brave to share your story. Thank you for allowing me. But I really hope that in the next five weeks and, and moving forward, you do find more peace and more assurance that it wasn't you and, you know, you've, you will overcome it. There is no doubt. I think it's more just time than anything else. I'm so in awe with you being able to share your story um, and to tell me that you are accepting it moving forward and it is now a part of the past and it's not going to impact your future.
1: No, it's part of what makes me who I am right now. Take yes. the good and the bad.
0: Yeah, People like you, it's, you know, it is strength. It's so much resilience.
1: So thank you.
0: This was hosted by my mum, Linda Prisoglu. Stay tuned for next week's episode of People Are Amazing, the podcast.